All right, Mark chapter 12. We'll be in verses 18 through 27 this morning. So, so now it's the Sadducees' turn to take a shot, to take a shot at Jesus. Just, you know, spoiler alert, this is going to go about as well as it has every other time that someone has taken a shot at Jesus. Uh, last week we looked at the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, have they, they, they took their best shot, right? But they, they just couldn't, couldn't live up. And so here's the Sadducees, who's another sort of uh, group or political group or religious group in, uh, in Palestine at the time. Um, and I remember singing some song when I was at camp or something like, I don't want to be a Sadducee. They're so sad, you see. Like, that's kind of that's kind of them. They were sort of the upper crust aristocratic um, party. They were opposed to the Pharisees, so they were sort of on the opposite side of the aisle from the Pharisees, where the Pharisees were were not at all happy with Rome being there. The Sadducees were very cozy with Rome, um, and but one of the things, one of the one of the theological differences with the Sadducees is that they only recognize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as being God's word. So they, they rejected the other historical books and the Psalms of Wisdom and the Major Minor Prophets and, and only focused on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, to them, that was the Bible. And so... Because of that, one of the one of the other things that they rejected then was also a lot of the supernatural things that happened. So they rejected the the existence of demons and angels. They didn't believe in it. Um, but they also, as a result, rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection of the dead. And so naturally, that's the angle of attack that they come to Jesus with as they. Uh, as they make their their move, right? So, so they have this question about the resurrection, and I guess their motive would be to just to try to trip him up, just to try to discredit or embarrass Jesus, or to get him to to pick a side with, which alienated one side or another. But uh, as they as I was kind of studying and thinking about this, um, I remember, I had a couple of memories, a couple of things that, that came back to me. And one of them was going to Pickwick Dam as a as a kid and being able to go inside the dam and tour the dam. Um, and there was all this weird old technology. I mean, it, I don't know that they had changed it since they built the dam. It looked like fifties type stuff. And, but there were the turbines, and we got this quick lesson on how the generators worked and all how the dam functioned and all that kind of stuff. And it was all just old and weird and loud and pretty cool, actually. And so that was all cool. But then, then we went down to where the, the spillway, like where the water was actually coming through the dam on the other side. We were on the, we were on the, the low side of the dam, so the water was coming out of this spillway or something, and we are just jetting out and the spray and the, the noise and just, you know, I don't know how many thousands of gallons per second was coming out of that thing, but it was just this, this huge amount of water. And what is the first thing that a group of Boy Scouts is going to do in a situation like that? Like, 
we're going to look for something to throw into the water, right? Which is exactly what we did. And you know, you throw a stick, and it would just it would be gone in an instant. Um, and then we also looked at it and said stuff like, "I could definitely swim that. <laughs> that is doable for me." Um, similarly, another time we were at Fall Creek Falls or someplace like that. And, or it was a big waterfall, I'm not sure exactly, but we were at the bottom of the waterfall. We were just kind of playing around and swimming, and so what did we do? We went under into the waterfall itself, which was pretty strong, right? Like, don't do that. <laughs> um, that hurt. <laughs> it, was, it was bad to do that. This water just coming down, it felt like we were being pelted by baseballs. And it's like, similarly, I've been, you know, as, a, as in youth ministry, you get to do things like whitewater rafting quite often. So I've never gone down the Okoe River in East Tennessee without getting into the Okoe River as a result. <laughs> just the swiftness of that current and the whitewater is just powerful, right? There's just so much power there. Like, I didn't know the power of moving water. Like, it generates electricity. You make other power from this power, right? Like, we have the same problem that the Sadducees had. Um, they didn't know or understand the power of God. And so really their question, and Jesus calls them out, and we'll talk about that, their question is a question of God's power. That, that we are in an eternal covenant relationship with the living God, who is also the God of the living. So as we read and look at this, I want us to look at it in two ways. First of all, uh, us as the people of the living God, the God as the God of living people. So the people of the living God and the God of living people. So let's read together uh, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Then Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as far as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of the dead? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. To understand this verse and this question that they ask, you have to understand an Old Testament concept called levirate marriage. 
which was the command for that God gave his people that if, if a man died without leaving any offspring, any male heirs, in order to pass his name and thus the inheritance allotted to him in the promised land by God, uh, then his next brother must marry the widow so that he can produce offspring which will then carry on the name of the brother. And so this was a, a means by which God continued to provide for his people by keeping the land that he had given them, the promised land, uh, which was a part of the covenant relationship of God and his people, uh, within the same families. And so that's what's going on with their question. That's why they ask this weird sort of question about brothers marrying the widow of their brothers. And so it would have been a very normal and expected uh, proper thing to do in that time under the old covenant. And so here they are asking this question uh, in verse, starting in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So we have questions about that. <laughs> we have questions about what Jesus just said there, right? There's a lot there that Jesus just said that, that brings up so many questions. And like the first one that pops into my head is like, why, why can't I be married to Catherine? Like I, I would love to, like that would be wonderful. Like I don't know that I want to experience heaven apart from that, that relationship, right? But then also there's a lot of questions around well, wait a minute, what did he mean about being like angels? And what does that have to do with marriage? And, and that brings up a whole bunch of other questions, like, will we recognize each other in heaven? Uh, like, and there's just probably a thousand others that just sort of, you can just think on what Jesus said there, and they just sort of bubble up to the surface. But there's, so, like, questions tend to rise, and we tend to sort of get anxious about those but I want us, in, not in light of those questions to get anxious, I want us to look at all the wonderful stuff that is here that, that we may not have seen or passed over because we're just sort of distracted by all of these questions going on. Uh, and the, the confusion and the questions might cause us to miss this, okay? Uh, verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the book how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So the Sadducees sort of arrogantly presumed that there was no evidence for the bodily resurrection of his people in the Old Testament, uh, that there was no resurrection of the dead in the first five books of Moses. And so Jesus, in his genius and his complete knowledge of the scriptures, goes straight to the source. He goes to the books of Moses so that not even the Sadducees can, can object to his sourcing of all of this. And he goes straight there. He goes to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and there is Moses on the mountainside. The burning bush is there. And Moses is like, who are you? What is going on here? And this is God's reply to him, right? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So Jesus' logic goes like this, that 
if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were worm food, if they were dust, if they were no more, if they died and just ceased to be, God can't be their God when he meets Moses some 400 years later, right? Like, there is, there, like, that's not the only evidence that there is in the first five books of, of the Bible, but that's the one that Jesus goes to. So God, in his reply to Moses, is, is confirming the, the living status of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So there's lots of implications here for what the resurrection is. And as we, as we think about it in terms of being the people of a living God, let's think about what that means for the people of a living God. What does the resurrection mean for us? Like, We've just finished Easter, and so it seems like again and again the Lord is bringing up this this idea of the resurrection and this hope that we have. So, first of all, it means that our bodies will be resurrected. The resurrection from the dead is a physical, bodily resurrection. In Hebrew thinking, there was no separation between our inward spiritual parts, like our soul, right? And our outward physical parts, our body. The body and the soul were one. And that's what we believe too, that we are whole people, body and soul, and the one without the other is not natural. That's why why death is called an enemy. Not just because of the pain and separation and sorrow that it brings to, to us as we lose loved ones, But it's also because there's a violence that is done to the whole person in death. That the soul is separated from the body. And that's not natural. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are people. They had bodies. They had staff souls. And God is the God, not just of one component part of people, right? But he is the God of the whole person. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, body and soul. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that we will be raised with imperishable bodies. And what that means is that for those who are in Christ, if that is you, you will be raised with an imperishable body from the dead. Not just your wispy, incorporeal spirit, right? But you, the whole person. So the first implication is that our bodies will be resurrected. The resurrection is a bodily resurrection. The next is that we will be truly ourselves and be recognizable. That they are Abraham, they are Isaac, they are Jacob, and God is the God of them, those men. That what made them individual has been preserved and perfected and glorified. And what makes us, us, in that day, will be at its ultimate. So there's a sense in which you will be more you than you ever have been in the resurrection of the dead. Jordan McDonald, who is one of my favorite authors, is a Christian fairy tale author, uh, said this about the resurrection. He said, the accidental, the non-essential, the unrevealing, the incomplete will have vanished. That which made the body what it was in the eyes of those who loved us will be tenfold there. 
I, I have told you several times about my friend in college, Chad, who was quadriplegic, and we got to be very close, and we would hang out a lot, and you know, we would just like to sit outside of his dorm and in in the sunshine. And Chad would often talk about his resurrection body as though it were a real thing. He would say, and we would watch people running and jogging and, and doing all that stuff, and Chad would just kind of say, man, when I get my new body, I'm just going to run. I'm just going to run and run and run. He had actual concrete plans for what he was going to do and enjoy when he was resurrected from the dead. What will, what will that be for you? Eyes that work. Ears that work, legs and arms and backs that work, minds that aren't susceptible to to forgetfulness, minds that aren't susceptible to the darkness of midnight. Right? We will be more able. So not only will we be more recognizable as ourselves, we will also be more able to give and receive love. The things which make all of our relationships deep and meaningful will be perfected. The things that you love most in your spouse will be perfected and intensified. The things that you love most about your mom or dad or best friend or or whoever, all of the followers of Jesus that you love, with whom you have a relationship, those things that you love the most about those people will be intensified. It will be tenfold there, as Jordan Powell said. And just because there's no marriage in heaven, that doesn't mean there's a reduction in our capacity to give and receive love. As we think about all of this, what a, what a great reason to share the gospel. <laughs> What wonderful reasons we have to share the gospel, to to be able to enjoy those relationships with the people that you love the most for eternity. To pray for the conversion of people. From people under the curse to the people of the living God. I alluded to it earlier, but here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable? What is what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The good news of Jesus is that this resurrection hope is given freely. It's given freely to to all of those who trust in Christ to to make the people of the curse of sin and death into the living people of the living God. So where is your hope? Where is your trust? Are you resting in the grace of Jesus or are you trusting in your own goodness for your hope? So that's the, the living people of God. Let's look at the God of living people. So Jesus says to the Sadducees that they are ignorant of the scriptures and the power of God. Verse 24, is this not the reason that you are wrong? First of all, you don't ever want Jesus to start off a sentence that way. 
Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then later on in verse 27, he says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So who is the God of living people? He's the God who makes eternal covenants with his people. In Exodus 3, God identifies himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. An eternal God doesn't make eternal covenants and promises with non-eternal beings. That he is the God who exercises his power to establish and preserve those covenants. Here's how this applied to me this week. This is the only, I just woke up, I was, I was very down. I was just discouraged and, you know, a little depressed and just, have you ever just woken up that way? Just waking up being discouraged and we're kind of just at some point during the day, something happens, you find yourself just sort of in the, I would say down in the dumps, but it's, it's a little bit more than that, you know, just something happened at, at home or, or at work or, you know, sometimes though, the enemy just kind of gets in your head, right? And you start believing the lies that he tells you. And, and uh, so I woke up this way and I just, I just decided, which is, uh, this is the fruit of a great work of sanctification in my life over the last year. I went for a run. Um, because sometimes it's, it helps to create new sources of pain and suffering to distract you <laughs> from the first source of pain and suffering. Um, but, but as I was running and praying and, and um, listening to my trash music playlist, um, somehow this notion of big jars of clay, that verse, you know, kind of from Second Corinthians came into my head. And here it is. I, went, I had to come, when I got back, I looked it up. Second uh, Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And that, that one little phrase in there hit me like, the God who says, let light shine out of darkness. You know what Paul's alluding to there? What is Paul talking about there? He's talking about Genesis 1. He's talking about creation. God's ex nihilo power, the creation from nothing, the God, the power that allowed God to say, let there be, and then there was, right? That's the power God sends to first resurrect dead hearts in salvation, but then to resurrect dead bodies in glorification. But here we are in the middle of all of that, that work of God in our lives, and it says we are jars of clay, right? And we feel that. Like we're always that, whether we feel it or not. But there are times, and there have been more times recently, that we've just felt this, this jar of clay, these jars of clay, like in, in creating pottery, the pottery goes through a phase called greenware, right? And it's just, you've made the pot and now it's drying on the rack and you haven't put it in the kiln yet. And it's then that it is the most fragile. And it's crumbling almost. 
That's how we are. That's what the Bible calls us. That we're this greenware. That we're fragile and crumbling. We're susceptible to all of these things. Not just discouragement, but also death and disease and depression. We are susceptible to all of these hardships and trial. But what does the, the, the God of the living people do? What does he fill up these jars of clay with? It's that same power that he filled the universe with light with. It's the same power that he used to speak everything that is into existence. That's the power that fills us up as jars of clay. That's the power that the God of living people gives to us. That that because of that, that creative power, the darkness has been filled and we have been redeemed. That's who the God of living people is. He is our home. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God identified himself as their God because he is their home. They were at home with their God as God was speaking to Moses through the burning bush. We often hear at funerals and just sort of, you know, when, when loved ones die, we often hear, well, I bet, I bet Jim is playing golf right now. Yeah. Or I bet, bet Aunt Pearl is swinging on a porch swing in heaven somewhere. Right? And those are good thoughts. Those are, like, think those thoughts. That's fine. But there's something deeper and bigger going on. R.C. Sproul went to a very liberal seminary in Philadelphia. And in one of the chapel ser- sermons that he heard, the, the speaker just was off the rails in terms of orthodoxy and just trashing, uh, trashing you know, biblically faithful Christianity. It's hard to imagine happening in a seminary, but that's, that's the kind of seminary that R.C. Sproul went to. And his mentor was Dr. John Gerstner, and he runs up to Dr. Gerstner after the, 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 the chapel message he heard, and he said, I bet Calvin is turning over in his grave if he heard that sermon. And Dr. Gerstner just rounds on him and says, Young man, don't you know that nothing could possibly destroy the felicity that John Calvin enjoys at this very moment? In other words, we do not understand the depth of joy and delight that God has prepared for his people in heaven. We don't understand it. We try to draw analogies about the things that our loved ones love to do in life and just imagine them doing them in heaven. And that helps us to, to mourn and to grieve and to let go. But the reality is we don't understand the joy that they're experiencing. The joy that that you receive from your earthly relationships cannot compare. The marriages, the friendships, the brothers, the sisters, no activity that we enjoyed on earth will compare to the activity of worshiping our living God forever. 
The God of living people delights to delight us with himself. He is our home. He exercises his power to bring us into the eternal joy of his presence. That is given freely by grace. Receive it. Rest upon it. Remember it in times of darkness. When you feel the reality of your own being this jar of clay, remember his recreative power that he speaks into our lives and fills us up with. He does that. He delights to do that. That makes God happy to do that for his people. It makes him happy to delight us with himself. Because that's who the God of living people is. He's not the God of the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your delight in us and your love for us as your people. Lord, we thank you that that you, you make eternal covenants with us and then keep them because, because we will eternally be with you one day. How wonderful a thought that is, that we will enjoy your presence, that our, our reason for existing is to glorify you and enjoy you. Lord, thank you for that second part. We think we know what it means to glorify you, but it's sometimes hard for us to see what it means to, to enjoy you. Uh, Lord, teach us more and more what it means to find our joy in who you are and what you've done for your people. Lord, even as we come to this table this morning, we pray that you would use it to, to remind us in that ultimate way of, of your your redeeming and raising to life your people because you raised to life your son. And his, his victory over the grave is our victory. Lord, thank you that we get to remember that and taste that and be reminded of that every week. Lord, I pray that you would bless us now as we come to this table and continue uh, to worship you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.